Three, two, one. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. And you are listening to Frame. That was a little cameo from our colleagues over at Radiolab. I don't know if I'd call them colleagues per se, but yeah, we managed to get an audio autograph from them when they came to campus. So cool. Anyway, welcome back to Frame. We're glad to be back, and thanks for all the feedback from episode one. As a reminder, this show is designed to build on itself. So if you haven't heard the first episode yet, stop here and go back. You can find it at www.soundcloud.com slash framepodcast or on the website for the WashU Political Review, www.wooper.org. Okay, now on to episode two. Last time, we left you with some questions, and we've been working hard to actually find some answers. We read up on the rich and occasionally fatal history of judicial codes and student discipline and even interviewed an ex-administrator from Vanderbilt University. All of that coming up on Frame. So last time we told you about a South Korean international student named Young Sung So. On October 27, 2013, Young fell to his death from the balcony of his high-rise apartment in the Dorchester on Skinker. Young's cause of death was originally ruled as a suicide, but later it got switched to suspicious circumstances because he had LSD in his body when he died. How does the lawsuit fit into this? Young's parents are suing Washu for wrongful death. But it's important to note their background. They're one of the wealthier families in South Korea with connections to Papa John's and Samsung. And Young's personal estimated net worth at his death was almost $300 million. Young, while not a member, had ties to a fraternity at WashU uh, known as SAMI, which had been in and out of a lot of trouble for drug dealing among other things like hazing and financial issues. So essentially the rationale for the case, what Young's parents, what his attorneys are arguing, is that had the members of SAMI, the ex-members of SAMI, who had been running this drug enterprise off campus, actually been disciplined by WashU in a less lenient way, aka actually being sent to local prosecutors and the real police instead of just being dealt with internally, that Young today would not be dead, that WashU's internal dealings with this situation created a toxic environment that proved to be fatal. In order to win, Young's parents need to prove two things. First, that Young did not commit suicide. And second, and maybe slightly more difficult, that WashU is responsible for creating an environment where this could happen in the first place. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to make the case that Young didn't kill himself. He was tripping on LSD at the time of his death, he was wearing two different shoes, and he'd purchased baseball tickets for a Cardinals game in the near future. And clothes to be delivered. And clothes. Uh, Now, proving that Wash U is guilty is a little more tricky. And that's where the So family's investigation overlaps with our own. It brings up a lot of philosophical questions about Um, the responsibility of our university and other universities like it in the non-academic lives of its students. Now, today on the show, we're going to try to ground our investigation in historical context. And to do that, we need to go back about 300 years, way back to colonial America. 
As you can imagine, colonial colleges looked nothing like the modern kind. All the students were male, and they were about the same age as today's high schoolers, just 14 or 15 years old. I mean, really merely kids. But demographics weren't the only major difference in colonial universities. They also took a really patriarchal approach to education. To a colonial university, there wasn't really a difference between intellectual training and moral training. They wanted to produce graduates who are moral, pious, and well-behaved. Universities could punish you for the usual things like drinking, violence, fighting, but they also controlled other aspects of your life, your bedtime, your mealtimes, who you were even allowed to socialize with, etc. Punishments for infractions range from writing an extra essay, being cuffed in the ear, or even being publicly flogged. Universities conceptualize themselves as being responsible for almost every aspect of their students' lives, accountable for student character as much as for their academics. This philosophy came to be known as in loco parentis. In loco parentis means I'm in place of the parents. And when higher education was founded in the United States, early on, parents would send their students away to school and absolutely expect that where the role of the parent left off, the role of the school picked up. That voice you just heard was an ex-high-level administrator from Vanderbilt University. He agreed to speak with us on the condition that we conceal his identity, so for now, let's just call him Mr. P. Because of in loco parentis, student discipline was a central part of the university experience. In fact, professors, the same people introducing their pupils to new ideas, were also charged with carrying out the floggings, ear cuffs, and other punishments of the day. Clearly, this was going to cause some problems. Colonial colleges chugged along throughout the 18th century, and then something major happened the American Revolution. Imagine being in college during the American Revolution. It would have been hard not to get caught up in the events of the day. College students took a hard look at the patriarchal universities they attended, and just as their external political environment was in turmoil, they decided to call for internal change as well. With the spirit of newfound democracy sweeping through the social and cultural plasmas of our young nation, students didn't see the dual roles of their professors, discipline and education, to be just. There were countless protests, some of them even escalating to violence. Buildings were burned, professors were assaulted, and no joke at times even killed. Naturally, this elicited a response from university officials. They decided to liberalize. American universities began to incorporate extracurricular activities into their operations. They imported gymnastics from Germany, for example, and allowed students to form student government. Universities tended to smile upon these changes and began implementing administrative ones of their own. The next big mile marker in the history of student discipline came in the time period following the Civil War. This period is often referred to as a period of quote-unquote disciplinary enlightenment. The president of Harvard during this period, Charles Eliot, was on the forefront of disciplinary reform. He believed that universities should give students the freedom to choose their field of study and even earn distinction in that field. But he also believed that a true university had a disciplinary system which, quote, imposes on the individual himself the main responsibility for guiding his conduct, end quote. University presidents began to hire specialists to oversee student conduct. 
These deans of men and women, now called deans of students, were not solely responsible for conduct, but also for extracurricular activities. Basically, anything outside the academic sphere of the university. Deans brought a new light to student discipline. Rather than the harsher precedents of the past, deans began to shed an optimistic or even humanist light on student discipline. Their main focus was on the development of the student as a whole. One of the most significant moments in the history of higher ed occurred in the wake of World War II when the GI Bill was passed, leading to an influx of college students that not only swelled the student population, but also diversified it. As veterans, these students came to be known as the silent generation because of the discipline they learned while serving. I mean, it really was the quote-unquote calm before the storm. Right, because what came next was the 1960s. We've already seen how on-campus changes in America tend to mirror the political climate of the time, and the 1960s were no different. The civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam protests, and generally the broader counterculture all eventually led to the demise of in loco parentis. So there were two major milestones marking this demise, the first being the passage of the 26th Amendment, which changed the voting age to 18. This meant that universities were no longer educating or disciplining minors, but now adults, and the relationship became less parental and more contractual. A definite contrast in the 19th century. There were also a series of lawsuits that slowly undermined in loco parentis, the most important being Dixon v. Alabama from 1961. All right, so to provide a little background, remember it's the heart of the civil rights movement. There's six young black students who want to be served in a courthouse in Montgomery, and as you might expect, they're denied service. They respond with a sit-in and other protests around the city. Their university, Alabama State University, expels them because in the eyes of the college, they were fostering an environment that was not conducive to learning. Now in making this decision, Alabama State University cited the doctrine of in loco parentis. They used that doctrine to make a decision which the students argued was actually pretty arbitrary and quite unilateral. The students ended up suing the university in court and they actually won. The courts found that the six students had not been given due process when they were expelled. It's important to note, too, that though this case pertained to a public school, private schools have followed in its footsteps, albeit with slightly more leeway. I mean, this case ultimately pulls the rug out from universities and essentially throws a wrench into 300 years of tradition in higher ed. So how do universities respond? Well, they were told to bring more due process into their judicial system, so they started to model them off the criminal justice system. Since the 60s, we've had a more legalistic system, but it raises the question of what environment does this set up in our universities? There's now this tension between an adversarial versus a rehabilitative system, and that is the question that is still up in the air and continues to evolve today. All right, boys, so we've seen that universities and students' conceptions of themselves throughout history uh, closely mirror the political and cultural climate of the country itself. Like, as the nation transformed from the patriarchal system of the colonies to becoming an independent, democratic republic, so too did the moralistic and disciplinarian colonial colleges transform into arenas where students demanded individual liberties, self-government, and most importantly, a decoupling of intellectual training from character development. Right, and so I, th I think we would all agree here that those parallels 
and that evolution is continuing today. So I guess the question then is, what new social and uh, political trends are shaping the disciplinary environment of colleges in the 21st century? I guess even though in loco parentis might be formally dead, um, in the sense that it can't be officially used as a justification for university action, I don't know if it's actually dead uh, conceptually, especially at private universities like WashU. Well, according to Mr. P, in his experience, uh, the role of actual biological parents is high and increasing. So perhaps this is hyperbole. I don't think it is, but perhaps it is. I can't substantiate it scientifically. But if the three of you responsible for this podcast, if none of your parents have um, gone to either college administrators or college faculty members um, on your behalf directly with or without your involvement during your four years in college, I suspect you are in the minority. Wow. And we can't forget here that our parents are also stakeholders in our university experience. I mean, at least familiarly and, and most often financially too. I mean, at times it seems that they're in partnership with the university and on the same page. And that's, that's what the university wants, but at times they're probably also at odds. Yeah, we even asked Mr. P about this directly. Did you ever have external pressure or, or pressure within the university, let's say from a public relations side, or let's say maybe an alumni donor side. You know, I think there are multiple constituencies within the university that put pressure or, or that that influence how you know decisions are made. Surely at a very top level, let's say as the chancellor or president. But I'm I'm wondering if that if that takes shape in as a in a judicial position. Unequivocally, yes. That that um, all scenarios have to be considered and weighed. Um, again, there's just sort of, in my experience, no such thing as um, a black and white answer in judicial affairs in higher education. You know, all of those things are considered, and I had multiple experiences, um, as you described. Yeah, so uh, after hearing that, it, it seems to me that we almost have two sets of privilege that we need to sort out. The first instance is privilege within our own disciplinary codes. Yeah, I mean, we have this legalistic judicial system that's modeled after the criminal justice system, and it's supposed to be beyond the influence of external pressures. And yet clearly this is, at best, an illusion, right? If as students were the citizens, so to speak, of the university community, there's way more to the disciplinary system than what would otherwise be qualified as due process, I'm surely according to Mr. P. Yeah, that's definitely true. And then we can't forget that there's also an external set of privileges too, and that's kind of what we talked about in episode one. It's the idea that college students as a whole get away with way more um, than their peers who don't attend universities. They get way more protection from the law. So we have university kids getting out of jail free and rich university kids getting out of trouble completely. So, so if this is the case, I mean, wow, are, are we okay with this? It raises a couple of almost damning questions. Are, are, so are, are we complicit in this system by simply attending a university like WashU? And 
if we are, it's kind of a gut check. Uh, what does this say about us? Next time on Frame, we take these questions to the streets. We want to hear your thoughts and your opinions and share them with our audience. So watch out for three curious dudes with cell phones coming your way. Today's episode is supported by Wooper, which is hosting our episode on its website. You can also check us out on SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and on the iTunes podcast page. Special thanks to our anonymous guest from Vanderbilt University for his time and thoughts. You might be hearing a little more from him in the future. Our theme music today was composed by our devilishly handsome and bearded David Gilmore. He also mixed today's episode. And surprise, he's engaged. <laughs> I'm not engaged. But if you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to shoot us an email at framepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, everyone. See you soon in episode three.